Let's take a few minutes tonight to review what we believe about the Lord's Supper and end our study by considering a few simple thoughts on what we can do between now and Sunday to prepare ourselves better to observe it. The Lord's Supper, the Almighty God's choice of wine and bread for communion with one another around the shed blood and the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be done in remembrance of Him as oft as we do it until He comes for us. What is the Lord's Supper? And obviously I'm addressing everyone from the oldest and most knowledgeable in the congregation to our children, and I hope that that's understood. What is the Lord's Supper? It's the communion service that we have on the first Sunday of every month of bread and wine to remember our Lord Jesus Christ dying for us. It's called the Lord's Supper in the Bible because Jesus, our Lord, ordained it for us. It's called the Lord's Supper because it's to remember our Lord dying for us. Where is it called the Lord's Supper? It's called the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20. It's called the Lord's Table in the chapter before that, 1 Corinthians 10 and the 21st verse. Where is it called communion? That's also in chapter 10. Outside of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, there's scant dealings in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper. It's those two chapters that we have 95% of the material that the New Testament gives us about communion. What does communion mean? When we say the Lord's table, well, that's a table where the Lord is honored, and that's a table that the Lord ordained us to have for Him. And when we say supper, that's the supper to honor the Lord, and it's a supper that the Lord ordained. But what about the word communion? It means fellowship. It means coming together and believing the same thing and rejoicing together about something. It means common union. So when we use the word communion, we're talking about the common union we have about the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He was virgin born, and that He died for our sins as a substitution. Second Adam for us was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and sits at God's right hand. It's one of the duties for Jesus' disciples to keep. If we want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then we keep communion. We keep the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. It is how Jesus wants us to remember His death. That's what communion is. Is it important? Anything to do with Jesus is extremely important. Yes, it's important. Since it remembers His death, it's important because the great purpose that He came into this world was to lay down His life as a sacrifice for us. It was to die. And so His death is very important. And so the Lord's Supper, though it appears... So small, slight, unimportant. We do it every month. It's a very important event in the world. There is nothing that takes place in Washington, D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue that's more important than a church of believing saints who in sincerity and in truth observe the Lord's Supper because we are remembering the high King of Heaven and His death for us. Since it remembers our salvation, it should be very important to you. Think about the church at Corinth. Because they abused the Lord's Supper, they suffered God's damnation. Now damnation there in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 28 through 32 is describing their physical problems. They were weak, they were sick, and they were dying prematurely. 
at that church because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Corinth shows how important it is that because they were not keeping it the right way, God killed a number of those church members. Abusing it deserves great pain. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. We cannot fulfill that passage in Hebrews 10 exactly because it was written to Hebrews about going back to Moses' law. But if we come in here without our minds prepared, or if we come into this church when we gather together on the Lord's Day for the Lord's Supper, and we do not do it properly, we are counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. It's not worthy of our best effort to prepare ourselves or to follow the right order for it. And so abusing it deserves great pain. And it goes on to say in those four verses, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's talking about the Lord's people, not his enemies. What is the Lord's Supper for? Jesus chose it for us to remember his death. And this is how we remember that Jesus died for us, is what we do on the first Sunday of each month. We also remember his death by preaching. And we remember his death by baptism, because remember, baptism has a burial involved in it. And we remember his death by spiritual songs that we sing, including the one we just sang about Jesus the Nazarene. It's still one of your top five? Just checking. We do not remember his death by Good Friday. You know, so many Christians think that the death of Jesus is to be remembered by Good Friday, but no, it's to be remembered at the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table in our communion service. Jesus said, For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. That is what for 2,000 years has been done by the true churches of Jesus Christ to remember his death. How do we learn to keep the Lord's Supper the right way? Well, it's a matter of revelation, meaning God has to reveal it to us. We can only do it correctly if we obey the Bible and what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. Jesus taught Paul directly about it, and Paul wrote down for us what Jesus taught him. For I have received of the Lord Jesus that which also I delivered unto you. That's a pretty wonderful statement in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, about where our instruction for the Lord's Supper came from. We do exactly what the apostles did with the Lord's Supper, and we reject anything else, no matter how much the rest of the Christian world might value it. Whatever the Bible says, that is what we're going to do when it comes to the Lord's table. Is there cause for concern? Like everything God gave men, they have sought out inventions and corrupted His ordinances. We're charged by our enemies and by skeptics and fools who don't know us, nor have, have they ever heard our position, that we ignore Jesus by not celebrating Christmas. But we love the Lord's Supper just the way He gave it, and that's how He wants to be remembered. Amen. Not by a Christmas tree, and not by an Easter egg hunt or anything like that. He wants us to remember Him and His death by the Lord's Supper. The errors of communion are legion. That means we are many. By Satan corrupting the Lord's ordinance. Let's protect the ancient landmarks about the Lord's Supper. And you young men sitting in this congregation, 
I hope that you're going to listen. You're being taught things I didn't have a clue about when I was your age. And I hope that you'll grow up to be fearless and to protect the ancient landmarks about the Lord's Supper and the other things this church does because we try to follow the Bible. What is this? Now that looks like a little handy traveling package, doesn't it? That's a mobile Lord's Supper unit. That's communion to be hauled around in your briefcase and pulled out whenever you need it. Here's a priest preparing his little wafer god for this man lying in bed. This is important for you to think about. Catholics carry the bread and the wine around in little packages like this in order to give it to people that are in nursing homes or in hospitals or shut in. And here he is doing it to this man in bed. I want you to think about that. Catholics haul it around because to them it's important for salvation. They think they need to do that in order to get the people that are in the beds saved. But communion is a congregational ordinance. That means it's something the church does. Communion is not an individual ordinance like that man lying in that bed. It is not for that man to do it in bed by himself. Communion is different. Now, baptism is an individual ordinance because the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized in that oasis out in the desert just with Philip present, and all that was really required was for the Ethiopian eunuch to believe with all his heart that Jesus was the Son of God. That's an individual ordinance. But communion is not an individual ordinance. It's a congregational ordinance, meaning it's something that the whole church does together. Communion needs more than one to commune. Does that make sense to you? Commune means to have fellowship and to be in common union, but you can't have a union with one person. The church must assemble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18, 20, and 20, and 33, all three of these places say, when ye are come together in one place. See, it's not for the hospital. It's not for shut-ins. It's for the whole church to celebrate together and to rejoice together about their common love of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to remember together His death for their sins. Roman Catholic priests carried around thinking that it saves men, but we know better than that. Communion is a congregational ordinance. It's not like baptism. What are they worshiping here? Now, if you'll look very closely, they're not worshiping the candles. There's a candle and there's six of them there. They're not worshiping the candles, but they're worshiping. What are they worshiping? They're worshiping that sun right there called a monstrance, which holds one piece of their wafer god right in the center. Let's take a look at it. There it is. Catholics worship the sun. And of course, they would be offended to hear us say that, but I'm just showing you. What do you think that looks like? A sunburst with their cracker god in the middle of it, right there. There's Pope John Paul II at worship because he's got his big cracker god right up there in his monstrance. Now what are these two worshiping? They're worshiping this thing right here, and it's called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle in a Catholic church is the little dog house or god house but they don't have God in their churches, so it's not fair to call it a God house, where they put the leftovers. 
That's what they're doing. Look, they're down on their knees, and they've got their heads bowed in this case, and she's looking at it, and that's called adoring the blessed sacrament. She's adoring the leftovers that are in that box, that canister. They are worshiping leftovers. That thing that I just showed you is called the tabernacle, and it's for the leftovers from what they consider communion, but it's actually their Catholic Mass. Remember, their cracker fully became Jesus, in their opinions. So the leftovers are also fully Jesus. This decorative cage for God is called the tabernacle. What do we do? We eat the leftovers, throw them out, or give them to a pet. Now, I speak as Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist when I say something like that. We, we do not want to do anything that would be out of order or unnecessarily foolish. But when we are talking about a subject like this, and we know the bread has not changed, it doesn't matter what we do with the leftovers. Except for some general decorum for the honor and glory of God and to worship Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. But there has been no change made to the bread. So we don't put it in a house and worship it, nor do we carry it around in a sunburst and worship it. What about the words in the Bible, this is my body? Jesus said that at the Last Supper when he introduced the Lord's Supper. Catholics say those words are literal. This is my body. The cracker is fully Jesus. It's fully his body. It's fully his blood. It's fully his divinity. And it is fully his soul. That's what Catholics say. That's called the doctrine of transubstantiation. Lutherans say that there's a synecdoche, a figure of speech called a synecdoche in the words, this is my body, meaning that the body is there and the cracker is there. So Jesus is in the cracker. You have both of them together. Presbyterians say in those four words is the figure of speech called a metonym or metonymy. Jesus is there spiritually, that he's received in, under, and around, and through the grace that is conveyed by the Lord's Supper to a Presbyterian. Now, we disagree with all three of them. And many theological wars have been fought, and many of our ancestors in the faith gave their lives for what we believe about these four words right here. This is my body. We understand that the word is is a metaphor. Jesus is not saying this is actually my body, but rather this bread represents my body. This bread symbolizes my body. This bread stands for my body. Jesus is represented by the bread. So that the bread becomes an object by which we remember Jesus because we take it to represent him, to symbolize him. And that's the truth of the Bible. When, the, when the, Jesus would say, I am the door, did he mean that he had hinges and a knob? No, he was using that metaphorically, meaning that there were characteristics of a door that were similar to him because Jesus is the one that is able to open God's blessings upon us and open our hearts when he chooses to do so, like he did the heart of Lydia. The bread does not change and it is not spiritual. When Jesus said, this is my body, he did not mean that literally. He was not using a synecdoche nor a metonym. He was using a metaphor. Like when he said, I am the vine. There are just traits about the Lord Jesus Christ that are similar to a vine. And a vine, in certain respects, represents Jesus. That's all. 
What about the words, drink ye all of it? Catholics usually keep the wine from the laity. For 1,500 years, if you were a Catholic, you couldn't drink the wine. You only got the little cracker, the little round sunburst cracker that they say is God. Jesus used these words for every person to drink. When he said, drink ye all, all of you drink of it, is what Jesus was saying in Matthew 26. All of the apostles were to participate in drinking the wine. Luke records it as, divide the wine among yourselves. Jesus condemned Catholics for withholding the wine from their membership, even before they had even thought of being a church. Because Jesus declared that doctrine in about 30 A.D., and the Catholic Church didn't really get cranking until five or 600 A.D., but Jesus had already cut off their foolish heresy of withholding the wine. What about drinky all of it? How can Catholics disobey Jesus when they're supposedly supposed to be honoring Jesus? Because they don't care what the Bible says. What they care about is their tradition, and they call it their magisterium, meaning that it is the church's interpretation of the Bible that counts and not the Bible, and they can interpret anything they want even though there isn't a semblance of resemblance in the Bible for what they say. They say the bread turned into his blood anyway. That's what they tell their people, that you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ under either species. What they mean by that is when you take the bread, that you're also getting his blood. Because after all, when he said, this is my body, it turned into his flesh, it turned into his blood, his soul, and his divinity. And of course, you know if they did that side, then they do this side as well. The wine turns into his body. Oh. Jesus said, this is my body, when he broke the bread. He didn't say, this is my blood, as he broke the bread. But that's what men will do when when they are given over by God to a reprobate mind and sent strong delusion to believe a lie. That's how confused they get about the Lord's Supper. And so we see the words, these five little words in Matthew 26, Drink ye all of it. All of you drink of the wine. And so Jesus is cutting off a heresy of the Catholic Church five, six hundred years before they even existed. Now what's wrong with this picture? We got a couple problems here. The first problem is there is what in those crackers? Leaven. And what is this? Is that wine? It's grape juice. So we've got two problems with that picture. And here they are down here. Some little cups of Welch's grape juice and some crackers. Why do we use wine? All of you should know this. We use wine because the Corinthians were drunken. It says that in 1 Corinthians 11.21. That they were drunken. That is a participial adjective describing that they were in, in the state of intoxication. They were drunk. Some of their church members were drunk by having too much of the communion wine. Paul corrected a whole lot of errors about how Corinth observed the Lord's Supper. A lot of errors. But he did not change the beverage, nor did he say anything about it, because they had the correct beverage. They were just using it the wrong way by drinking too much. And so he told them, Do ye not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Therefore, if any man hunger, let him eat at home. 
so that when you come together, you don't come together to condemnation. He did not say, leave your wine at home and bring your grape juice from home so that we can have a real Lord's Supper. He said, don't drink so much. Jesus and the Jews usually drank wine. Jesus drank wine often. Abraham and Melchizedek drank wine and had bread for their fellowship after Abraham's great victory. Church history knows no other substance, beverage, used in the Lord's Supper except wine until the 19th century when a Methodist doctor invented Welch's grape juice. His name was Welch. You can look him up and see how he introduced that into the Methodist church. And along with the rise of the temperance movement in our country, it became very popular to substitute grape juice for wine, but it had never been done before. Which should we use? This is red wine. This is white wine. Which one do you think we ought to use? Red. Which should we use? Blackberry wine. Should we try blackberry? It's a nice dark color. No, because it is not a fruit of the vine, and Jesus said that we're to use a fruit of the vine. Do blackberries grow on a vine, David? They grow on a bush, a plant, but not a vine. Red wine is the color of blood, and in these two passages, one of which we read very recently, it's called the blood of the grape. Because it's the color of blood. It's red. It's, it's a perfect symbol for our Savior's blood. White wine does not represent blood at all. You can't even imagine blood when you look at a glass of white wine. It's possible that Israel had little or no white wine because it was red wine that has been the main source and main kind of wine in the history of winemaking until more recently than the Old Testament times when they established what Israel drank, which resulted in what they had at the Passover and throughout Israel that Jesus drank during his life. So we use the blood of red grapes for our wine because the Bible describes that wine as looking like blood, which is what it stands for. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And so red wine looks like his blood. Why do we use unleavened bread? Well, Jesus started the Lord's Supper at the Passover feast. The Passover feast was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There could be no leaven in their houses and no leavened bread in their houses. I can promise you there was no leavened bread in the city, the street, or the house where Jesus had the Last Supper. Jesus had to have used unleavened bread. But beyond that, the Apostle Paul, and I read this passage to you this past Sunday, referred to our church, every church, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, as being an unleavened lump by getting rid of the leaven of malice and wickedness. Leaven in the Bible, which is yeast, is usually a symbol for sin. And so Paul argues from that in this passage right there that we ought to be an unleavened body when we partake of that bread. And let's get rid of the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now, he's not talking about the ingredients directly there. He's appealing to those ingredients because he's just mentioned that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The real issue is that our character and conduct as a church does not have any leaven or yeast, which is sin, in it. That we are a pure body. Why not crackers or wafers? Because the Bible says bread not crackers. 
because it must be broken or torn from a hole. Manufactured wafers are never broken or torn. Break means to tear or to open or to distribute. Like when you say, break out the such and such, you'll say that, meaning that it has to be divided and separated. And so break means to take a lump of bread and to tear it in pieces, break it in pieces for individual use. The Bible is plain here. We can read about breaking here and breaking here and there. The bread which we break, is it not the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? How about adding the Passover? It is popular today to add Old Testament feasts and customs to New Testament practice, like having a Passover supper in the church on a Saturday night, then having the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning, or having them both on Saturday night. What do we think of that? The Passover was an Old Testament feast for Jews. It remembered something very minor in comparison to our deliverance from sin and eternal condemnation. We want to remember what God has done for us a whole lot more than pass over our houses. But any Gentile observing the Passover in the 21st century didn't have an angel even pass over their houses. They're going back and taking up a feast that was for a particular people that came out of Egypt in one glorious night when the Lord sent His angel through the land and slew the firstborn. It's ridiculous. Why in the world do people want to go back to the Old Testament where the shadows and the figures of things are when we have the New Testament that is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the full fulfillment of the Passover. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And how often was He sacrificed? Once for all. We remember blood, our Lord Jesus Christ's blood, to save us eternally from sin. That's what we're remembering when the Passover is just remembering the sheep blood, the lamb blood that was put over their door that the angel would pass over. And so I say about it, Nahushtan, it's sheep blood. Who cares about the Passover? It's just a historical event of the Jews and their deliverance from Egypt. Our Lord Jesus Christ shed His own blood once for all. Who can participate in the Lord's Supper? Only baptized believers and church members. So you've got to be baptized, and baptism is a requirement to be a church member. Then you've got to be a church member to have communion because communion is a church ordinance, a congregational ordinance. Baptism comes before membership, and the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. It's a church rite. It's something the church does, so you've got to be a church member. Open communion is the practice that anyone can walk in off the street, and they're not going to be questioned or anything, and they can participate in communion. That's called open communion. There's close communion. That's what it's called. These are the three distinctions that cover 99% of most churches and denominations. Close communion allows those similar in faith. For instance, if you're a Baptist church, another Baptist comes in, sure, you can commune with us, you're a Baptist. The pastor will typically say in a Baptist church, anyone who has been baptized by a prof- after a profession of their faith by immersion in water is welcome to commune with us. Some statement like that. Closed communion is what we practice. 
and that's only for a local church's members. Why do we do it that way? Because that's all we see in the New Testament. is a church like Corinth coming together into one place and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Corinth did not get in buses and drive up to Philippi. They could have. They didn't get in buses and drive up to Philippi to have some joint communion service with the church at Philippi. Because a local church is by itself the body of Christ. We are Christ's body considered on a local church basis. Because church discipline is by the local church only. How in the world can we let someone else come in and commune with us when we don't know how they're living or what they believe? We we have common union with one another because we know what we believe. And as far as our public conduct is concerned, we know how we're living. Because it needs an assembly of the whole church. So how are you going to get these visitors together every time you're going to have the Lord's Supper? If they happen to be here on vacation and pop in and take communion with us. Because most Christians are not even baptized. What if a Presbyterian comes in? They're not even baptized. Because it requires common union and doctrine. How do we know what they believe and how do they know what we teach? Because you're a member of one body at a time. So if they have a church membership in Michigan and they're visiting family in Greenville, they can't be a member of two bodies at once to come in and participate with us. Their membership is in Michigan. Because a church is liable for communicants. We're going to be held responsible if we allow someone to commune with us who's living ungodly. Because it's Rome that opens it up willy-nilly that anybody can go in and take Mass anywhere and not be questioned. And if you just think about it for a little while, you'll find out how illogical and dysfunctional it is when they do that. It ruins all church judgment. Because if a church were to put someone out, then they could go join another church, come back, and commune with the first church because they're communing as a member of another church because they're practicing open or close communion. It's just ridiculous what takes place. We practice closed communion because that's what's taught in the Bible. This is not the most thorough proof of it tonight. It's just a review. A few miscellaneous aspects. One cup or many cups are both legitimate. Some churches use one cup and pass it around. Maybe one cup for each side. Some Presbyterians even give communion to their infants. It's called infant communion. Go Google it. It's ridiculous. But you know what? I respect them for being consistent. If they're going to baptize their little infants, they might as well pull their mother's breasts out of the baby's mouth and stick in a little piece of bread and pour some wine in. Yeah, they ought to, if they're going to be consistent. We should think of more, having it more often, not less. Our unity around Jesus Christ is seen right there at that table. This is a good spiritual test against belly worship that I preached on Sunday, is how much do you look forward to the Lord's Supper? How can we prepare for it? We examine ourselves. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but let, it, let every man examine himself. And this is to keep from eating and drinking unworthily. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You are guilty for crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ if you partake of communion unworthily. And the first thing you do is examine yourself to find any sin in your life and to confess it. The second thing is, well, this is part of examining yourself, is to be reconciled to any offended person. God hates the murderous anger, hatred, bitterness, and grudge that people hold sometimes. And so in Matthew 5... 
Jesus said, if you're going to bring a gift to an altar, and listen, the greatest gift that we're ever associated with in worship as a New Testament church is the Lord's gift of His body and blood for our salvation, you better be reconciled to anybody. If you have a conflict or a fight or a disagreement with anyone, you should be reconciled to them before you partake of the Lord's Supper. We are to discern. This is the other verb in 1 Corinthians 11. His death in the elements. When we use the word element, we mean the bread and the wine. And we should look at the bread and be thinking about His torn body. And when we look at the wine, we should be thinking about His shed blood. So that we want to be conscious and conscientiously conscious of what Jesus Christ did for us. These are the two verbs in 1 Corinthians 11 that keep us from eating and drinking unworthily and bringing God's damnation on us. We examine ourselves by taking the time on Wednesday night this week or Thursday or Friday or Saturday and getting your sins confessed, your relationships reconciled so there's no one offended with you and that you are prepared by meditation to discern Jesus Christ in what we do. You eat elsewhere to avoid hunger. You don't come in here hungry, and you eat at break time if you need to, so that you're not thinking about food. And we're communing with others about Jesus. Do you know what it actually says in 1 Corinthians 11? It says, tarry one for another. That means not to bull ahead or rush ahead and eat more than another person, but to wait until everyone's been served, and so we do it together. The practice of how we do communion is described in 1 Corinthians 11. How do we participate? You know, any brother could lead the communion service. We believe that as a church. I'm not a priest, and I don't change that bread into anything. Any man's prayer that blesses the bread or blesses the cup is as good as mine. I'm not a priest. That's been taught before, and we're just reviewing a few things tonight. We could distribute the elements most any way. You could all file up past the table yourself and pick up your piece of bread and go back to your chair. It doesn't matter. You should eliminate distractions from your mind. You should not have other things, business, family, finances, cars, lawn work, or other things on your mind when you come to the Lord's table because all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And He wants to be honored and glorified at His supper. You can reflect on the scriptures, songs, or words to help you participate. And you should be blessing and thanking the God of heaven for sending Jesus Christ, His Son, to be your Savior from sin. A witness of Jesus on earth. I preached this to you a few weeks ago from 1 John 5, 6-8. through 8. It told us that there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit... The Holy Spirit of God wrote the scriptures and enables preachers to preach those scriptures and the water, which is the water of baptism, and the blood. And these three agree in one, and the blood is the Lord's Supper. It is a wonderful witness of Jesus Christ being the Son of God that we perpetuate on earth. Communion is a perpetual memorial to Jesus that He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God by the Spirit and baptism. And it is our communion practice that's about 2,000 years old that also declares Him to be the Son of God. Brethren, now follow with me for a few pages of some simple ideas for you to prepare yourself for Sunday. How can we delight in the Lord's Supper? 
before Sunday, make sure you finished all your duties. What were those duties? Examine yourself and discern the Lord's body and be reconciled to anyone where you have a difference. Note the word Passover. These are just miscellaneous thoughts to provoke your minds. The word Passover means, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That was a destroying angel in Egypt. But brethren, we're going to stand before the great white throne of Almighty God, and the Lord Jesus Christ will sit as judge, and we're going to want our names to be found in the book of life of the Lamb slain, meaning that He's going to see the blood and pass over us. What are favorite communion songs? Let me hear a couple right now. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, describing our Lord's sufferings. Wonderful. When I survey the wondrous cross. Another. There is a fountain filled with blood. You know, do you have a favorite communion song? Young people, do you have a favorite communion song? If you do, what's number two? What's mine? Thank you, son. Ah, dearest Jesus. What are your favorite communion texts? Let me hear a few. I hope Isaiah 53 fits in somewhere. That's wonderful. Thank you, Paul. Other communion texts. Do you like Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How about Revelation chapter 5? where the three choirs in heaven are singing praise to the Lamb for who is worthy for being slain and redeeming us to God by His blood. How about the one that Jerry mentioned? That if one died for all, then all were dead, and they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto Him that loved them and gave Himself for them. How about Hebrews chapter 9? Anna, thank you for writing me that this week. Hebrews chapter 9. And by means of death... He brought the new covenant into force. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. These passages of Scripture, if you will finish your carnal activities on a Saturday evening and sit down in a quiet place and read them carefully and meditate on them, will feed and fuel your soul. It is called a feast, my brethren. It is not called a fast. So keep that in mind. It's a time really to celebrate, though we celebrate soberly by making sure we come reverently and with our sins confessed. It's not a funeral. Jesus is very much alive and well. He just wants us to remember what price He paid that we can spend eternity with Him. Emotion is not the key, but rather faith. Don't let emotion drive you at the Lord's Supper. There's not a word in the Bible about emotion at the Lord's Supper. There's plenty about faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, discerning His body in the bread and His blood in the wine. Emotions change from one Lord's Supper to the next, but Jesus is the same forever. And faith does not need to change nearly as much as emotions do. Maybe considering that the saints have kept it for 2,000 years, sometimes in caves, sometimes in catacombs, sometimes they've lost their lives for keeping the Lord's Supper the way we will. That might encourage you to think about the common union that we have in a lesser degree with all our brethren that went before us. Commit yourself anew to live for Jesus every day. 
as you come to this table? How can we delight in it? How many ways can you think of his suffering? Did he suffer physically? Did he suffer emotionally? Did he suffer personally? Did his companions leave him? Did he suffer spiritually? Did God forsake him? There's all the, there's, there are these large categories of ways in which Jesus suffered for us. How many of your sins are not put away forever? None, because they're all put away. How's that for a thought to get excited about the Lord's Supper? Does that include all past sins? Even the big ones, the heinous ones, the horrible ones, the presumptuous ones. Does it include all of them? How about future sins? Praise be to God. What is the book of life of the Lamb slain? Does that mean anything to you? Your name had better be in that book, or you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And it is called the book of life, because if your name's in it, you have eternal life. And it's called the book of life of the Lamb slain, because the Lamb is the owner of it, and He has paid for everyone in it. And He was slain to redeem them to God by His blood. You can go back and look at an outline, or you can listen to a tape about the book of life out of this church's pulpit. How long did his torn body remain in the grave? Three days and three nights. Where is he now, my brethren? Seated at the right hand of God. And what condition is he in? He is glorified. And John could not believe what he saw when he turned around to look at the to look for the voice that spake unto him in Revelation chapter 1. These are things you can do to prepare your heart to delight in your Savior come this Lord's day. What happened in heaven when he ascended? Revelation chapter 5. The different choirs burst forth. The four and twenty elders threw down their crowns and praised him. The angels praised him. The saints and the four beasts said, Amen. Amen. How many choirs? At least three. Are you glad he obeyed his father in the garden of Gethsemane? Are you glad he didn't call twelve legions of angels? You would have, and I would have for you, and you would have for me. But the Lord Jesus did not. You know, it's one thing to endure pain and suffering when you can't avoid it. But when you could have just, in your thoughts, said, help me, and would have been delivered. That's pretty hard to endure what Jesus went through, what He did for you and me. He laid down His life voluntarily. Are you happy being married to Jesus? What dowry did He pay? His own precious blood. Unbelievable. Fantastic. Lord, help us see it. Paul purposed to glory only in the cross of Christ. Is that your purpose? Not to glory, not to get excited by anything else except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul was an excitable person. You can tell by reading him. However, nothing could compete and nothing did compete with the cross of Christ. We are to delight in God, but there's nothing greater than God sending His own Son proving His incredible love for us. Do you want to win Him? Like Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that I might win Him. Do you want to win the Lord Jesus Christ and think about how loving you're going to be when you come to the Lord's table this Lord's day? 
Your heart's going to be full of thanksgiving and appreciation and devotion and commitment and faith and hope toward Him. You can set your affection on Jesus and His death. Don't watch a movie on Saturday night. Don't watch an NBA playoff game. Meditate on some Bible verses. Go to bed early. Set your affection on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can fully engage. Oh, you can fully engage to glorify Him to the max if you'll prepare yourself and give Him the honor that He deserves. You can pray for it. You know, in Ephesians chapter 3, this is where the apostle said that God, by strength of His Holy Spirit in our inner man, would teach us the full dimensions of Christ's love until we are filled with all the fullness of God. You can pray. You can read, as I've already mentioned, scriptures that exalt His death. Meditate on them. They are spiritual words. And if you will come to them with a spiritual mindset and a desire to see and meet and embrace Jesus Christ, the words will feed your soul. It is not like any other book. Sing or hear songs that move you toward Him. That's why your favorite songs. If you have them on a CD, then listen to them. Pull out the words and be looking at the words while you listen. Or, like Matthew, write a song like he did twice recently. Sit down and write a song about the Lord Jesus Christ dying for you. And speak to others about Him and His gracious death. Those are some things that we can do before Sunday. We can pray, read, sing, and speak to others. We can purpose like Paul to glory in the cross of Christ and to delight in Him and to win Him as he wanted to do in Philippians 3. You can set your affection on Jesus and you can fully engage to glorify Him to the max. We cleaned up our lump on Sunday. I want to give the Lord Jesus Christ all that we can give Him in the simple gospel faith of the Lord's Supper. We do not add to its complexity. I'm not going to bring larger cups on Sunday unless one of you write me and say that would help your soul. Then we'll have larger cups. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us how much except we do not use the Lord's Supper to eat or to drink because we're to do that at home. I hope that you will prepare to come and give the Lord all that you can personally in faith and love and thankfulness to Him for what He's done for you. And then as we do that with each other, our communion together, our common union around His death will come up into heaven as a sweet-smelling savour. We do not add anything pretty. We do not need purple cloths for the table. We do not need lilies or anything like that. All we need is bread, unleavened bread, wine, red wine of the grape, and faith. And examine ourselves and discern that this is the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. And to believe it by faith that He is the Son of God and that we are perpetuating a memorial in the earth for Him until He comes for us. May the Lord bless our Bible study tonight.